Section 1 of Chapter 24 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 24, Section 1. The Gazette, which informed the public that the King had set out for Holland, announced also the names of the first members returned, in obedience to his writ, by the constituent bodies of the realm. The history of those times has been so little studied that few persons are aware how remarkable an epoch the general election of 1698 is in the history of the English Constitution. We have seen that the extreme inconvenience which had resulted from the capricious and headstrong conduct of the House of Commons during the years immediately following the Revolution had forced William to resort to a political machinery which had been unknown to his predecessors, and of which the nature and operation were but very imperfectly understood by himself or by his ablest advisers. For the first time the administration was confided to a small body of statesmen who, on all grave and pressing questions, agreed with each other and with the majority of the representatives of the people. The direction of war and of diplomacy the king reserved to himself, and his servants, conscious that they were less first than he in military affairs and in foreign affairs, were content to leave to him the command of the army and to know only what he thought fit to communicate about the instructions which he gave to his own ambassadors about the conferences which he held with the ambassadors of other princes but with these important exceptions the government was entrusted to what then began to be called the ministry the first english ministry was gradually formed nor is it possible to say quite precisely when it began to exist but on the whole the date from which the era of ministries may most properly be reckoned is the day of the meeting of the parliament after the general election of sixteen ninety five that election had taken place at a time when peril and distress had called forth all the best qualities of the nation the hearts of men were in the struggle against france for independence for liberty and for the protestant religion everybody knew that such a struggle could not be carried on without large establishments and heavy taxes the government therefore could hardly ask for more than the country was ready to give a house of commons was chosen in which the whig party had a decided preponderance the leaders of that party had presently been raised one by one to the highest executive offices the majority therefore readily arranged itself in an admirable order under the ministers and during three sessions gave them on almost every occasion a cordial support the consequence was that the country was rescued from a dangerous position and when that parliament had lived out its three years enjoyed prosperity after a terrible commercial crisis peace after a long and sanguinary war and liberty united with order after civil troubles which had lasted during two generations and which sometimes order and sometimes liberty had been in danger of perishing such were the fruits of the general election of sixteen ninety five the ministers had flattered themselves that the general election of sixteen ninety eight would be equally favourable to them and that in the new parliament the old parliament would revive nor is it strange that they should have indulged such a hope 
since they had been called to the direction of affairs everything had changed changed for the better and changed chiefly by their wise and resolute policy and by the firmness which their party had stood by them there was peace abroad and at home the sentinels had ceased to watch by the beacons of dorsetshire and sussex the merchant ships went forth without fear from the thames and the avon soldiers had been disbanded by the tens of thousands taxes had been remitted the value of all public and private securities had risen trade had never been so brisk credit had never been so solid all over the kingdom the shopkeepers and the farmers the artisans and the ploughmen relieved beyond all hope from the daily and hourly misery of the clipped silver were blessing the broad faces of the new shillings and half-crowns the statesmen whose administration had been so beneficent might be pardoned if they expected the gratitude and confidence which they had fairly earned but it soon became clear that they had served their country only too well for their own interest in sixteen ninety five adversity and danger had made men amenable to that control to which it is the glory of free nations to submit themselves the control of superior minds in sixteen ninety eight prosperity and security had made men querulous fastidious and unmanageable the government was assailed with equal violence from widely different quarters the opposition made up of tories many of whom carried toryism to the length of jacobitism and of discontented whigs some whom carried whiggism to the length of republicanism called itself the country party a name which had been popular before the words whig and tory were known in england the majority of the late house of commons a majority which had saved the state was nicknamed the court party the tory gentry who were powerful in all the counties had special grievances the whole patronage of the government they said was in whig hands the old landed interest the old cavalier interest had now no share in the favours of the crown every public office every bench of justice every commission of lieutenancy was filled with roundheads the tory rectors and vicars were not less exasperated they accused the men in power of systematically protecting and preferring presbyterians latitudinarians arians Sassusians, deists atheists an orthodox divine a divine who held high the dignity of the priesthood and the mystical virtue of the sacraments who thought schism as great a sin as theft and venerated the icon as much as the gospel had no more chance of a bishopric or a deanery than a papist recusant such complaints as these were not likely to call forth the sympathy of whig malcontents but there were three war cries in which all the enemies of the government from trenchard to seymour could join no standing army no grants of crown property and no dutchmen multitudes of honest freeholders and freemen were weak enough to believe that unless the land force which had already been reduced below what the public safety required were altogether disbanded the nation would be enslaved and that if the states which the king had given away were re resumed all direct taxes might be abolished the animosity to the dutch mingled itself both with the animosity to standing armies and with the animosity to crown grants 
for a brigade of dutch troops was part of the military establishment which was still kept up and it was to dutch favourites that william had been most liberal of the royal domains the elections however began auspiciously for the government the first great contest was in westminster it must be remembered that westminster was then by far the greatest city in the island except only the neighbouring city of london and contained more than three times as large a population as bristol or norwich which came next in size the right of voting at westminster was in the householders paying scot and lot and the householders paying scot and lot were many thousands it is also to be observed that their political education was much farther advanced than that of the great majority of the electors of the kingdom a burgess in a country town or a forty shilling freeholder in an agricultural district then knew little about public affairs except what he could learn from reading the postman at the alehouse and from hearing on the thirtieth of january the twenty ninth of may or the fifth of november a sermon in which questions of state were discussed with more zeal than sense but the citizen of westminster passed his days in the vicinity of the palace of the public offices of the houses of parliament of the courts of law he was familiar with the faces and voices of ministers senators and judges in anxious times he walked in the great hall to pick up news when there was an important trial he looked into the court of king's bench and heard cowper and harcourt contending and holt moderating between them when there was an interesting debate in the house of commons he could at least squeeze himself into the lobby or the court of requests and hear who had spoken and how and what were the numbers of the division he lived in a region of coffee-houses of bookseller shops of clubs of pamphlets of newspapers of theatres where poignant allusions to the most exciting questions of the day perpetually called forth applause and hisses of pulpits where the doctrines of the high churchman of the low churchman of the nonjuror or of the nonconformist were explained and defended every sunday by the most eloquent and learned divines of every persuasion at that time therefore the metropolitan electors were as a class decidedly superior in intelligence and knowledge to the provincial electors montague and secretary vernon were the ministerial candidates for westminster they were opposed by sir henry colt a dull surly stubborn professor of patriotism who tired everybody to the death with his endless railing at standing armies and placemen the electors were summoned to meet on an open space just out of the streets the first lord of the treasury and the secretary of state appeared at the head of three thousand horsemen colt's followers were almost all on foot he was a favorite with the keepers of pot-houses and had enlisted a strong body of porters and chairmen the two parties after exchanging a good deal of abuse came to blows the adherents of the ministers were victorious put the adverse mob to the rout and cudgelled colt himself into a muddy ditch the poll was taken in westminster hall from the first there was no doubt of the result but colt tried to prolong the contest by bringing up a voter an hour when it became clear that this artifice was employed for the purpose of causing delay the returning officer took on himself the responsibility of closing the books and of declaring montague and vernon duly elected at guildhall the junto was less fortunate 
three ministerial aldermen were returned but the fourth member sir john fleet was not only a tory but was governor of the old east india company and had distinguished himself by the pertinacity with which he had opposed the financial and commercial policy of the first lord of the treasury while montague suffered the mortification of finding that his empire over the city was less absolute than he had imagined wharton notwithstanding his acknowledged preeminence in the art of electioneering underwent a succession of defeats in boroughs and counties for which he had expected to name the members he failed at, at brackley at malmesbury at cockermouth he was unable to maintain possession even of his own strongholds wickham and aylesbury he was beaten in oxfordshire the freeholders of buckinghamshire who had been true to him during many years and who in sixteen eighty five when the whig party was in the lowest state of depression had in spite of fraud and tyranny not only placed him at the head of the poll but put their second votes at his disposal now rejected one of his candidates and could hardly be induced to return the other his own brother by a very small majority the elections for exeter appear to have been in that age observed by the nation with peculiar interest for exeter was not only one of the largest and most thriving cities in the kingdom but was also the capital of the west of england and was much frequented by the gentry of several counties the franchise was popular party spirit ran high and the contests were among the fiercest and the longest of which there is any record in our history seymour had represented exeter in the parliament of james and in the first two parliaments of william in sixteen ninety five after a struggle of several weeks which had attracted much attention not only here but on the continent he had been defeated by two whig candidates and forced to take refuge in a small borough but times had changed he was now returned in his absence by a large majority and with him was joined another tory less able and if possible more unprincipled than himself sir bartholomew shower shower had been notorious as one of the hangmen of james when that cruel king was bent on punishing with death soldiers who deserted from the army which he kept up in defiance of the constitution he found that he could expect no assistance from holt who was the recorder of london holt was accordingly removed shower was made recorder and showed his gratitude for his promotion by sending to tyburn men who as every barrister in the inns of court knew were guilty of no offence at all he richly deserved to have been accepted from the act of grace and left to the vengeance of the laws which he had so foully perverted the return which he made for the clemency which spared him was most characteristic he missed no opportunity of thwarting and damaging the government which had saved him from the gallows having shed innocent blood for the purpose of enabling james to keep up thirty thousand troops without the consent of parliament he now pretended to think it monstrous that william should keep up ten thousand with the consent of parliament that a constituent body should be so forgetful of the past and so much out of humour with the present as to take this base and hard-hearted pettifogger for a patriot was an omen which might well justify the most gloomy prognostications when the returns were complete it appeared that the new house of commons contained an unusual number of men about whom little was known and on whose support neither the government nor the opposition could with any confidence reckon the ranks of the staunch ministerial whigs were certainly much thinned 
but it did not appear that the Tory ranks were much fuller than before. That section of the representative body, which was Whiggish without being ministerial, had gained a great accession of strength, and seemed likely to have, during some time, the fate of the country in its hands. It was plain that the next session would be a trying one. Yet it was not impossible that the servants of the crown might, by prudent management, succeed in obtaining a working majority. Towards the close of August, the statesmen of the junto, disappointed and anxious, but not hopeless, dispersed in order to lay in a stock of health and vigor for the next parliamentary campaign. There were races at that season in the neighborhood of Winchenden, Wharton's seat in Buckinghamshire, and a large party assembled there. Orford, Montague, and Shrewsbury repaired to the muster. But Summers, whose chronic maladies, aggravated by sedulous application to judicial and political business, made it necessary for him to avoid crowds and luxurious banquets, retired to Turnbridge Wells and tried to repair his exhausted frame with the water of the springs and the air of the heath. Just at this moment dispatches of the gravest importance arrived from Gwelders at Whitehall. The long negotiation touching the Spanish succession had at length been brought to a conclusion. Tallard had joined William at Loo and had met there Heinsius and Portland. After much discussion, the price in consideration of which the House of Bourbon would consent to waive all claim to Spain and the Indies and to support the pretensions of the electoral prince of Bavaria was definitively settled. The Dauphin was to have the province of Dipuscoa, Naples, Sicily, and the small Italian islands which were part of the Spanish monarchy. The Milanese were allotted to the Archduke Charles. As the electoral prince was still a child, it was agreed that his father, who was then governing the Spanish Netherlands as viceroy, should be regent of Spain during the minority. Such was the first partition treaty, a treaty which has been during five generations confidently and noisily condemned, and for which scarcely any writer has ventured to offer even a timid apology, but which it might perhaps not be impossible to, to defend by grave and temperate argument. It was said, when the first terms of the partition treaty were made public, and has since been many times repeated, that the English and Dutch governments, in making this covenant with France, were guilty of a violation of plighted faith. They had, it was affirmed, by a secret article of a treaty of alliance concluded in 1689, bound themselves to support the pretensions of the emperor to the Spanish throne, and they now, in direct defiance of that article, agreed to an arrangement by which he was excluded from the Spanish throne. The truth is that the secret article will not, whether construed according to the letter or according to the spirit, bear the sense which has generally been put upon it. The stipulations of that article were introduced by a preamble, in which it was set forth that the Dauphin was preparing to assert by arms his claims to the great heritage which his mother had renounced, and that there was reason to believe that he also aspired to the dignity of King of the Romans. For these reasons, England and the States-General, considering the evil consequences which must follow if he should succeed in attaining either of his objects, promised to support with all their power his Caesarian majesty against the French and their adherents. Surely we cannot reasonably interpret this engagement to mean that, when the dangers mentioned in the preamble had ceased to exist, when the eldest archduke was king of the Romans, 
and when the dauphin had for the sake of peace withdrawn his claim to the spanish crown england and the united provinces would be bound to go to war for the purpose of supporting the cause of the emperor not against the french but against his own grandson against the only prince who could reign at madrid without exciting fear and jealousy throughout all christendom end of section one recording by richard carpenter in seattle washington